Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are God's judgments and how unscrutable God's ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been God's counselor? Or who has given a gift to God to receive a gift in return? For from God and through God and to God are all things. To God be the glory forever. Amen. It is nearly impossible to describe just how gorgeous these four verses are here at the end of Romans chapter 11. They're beautiful. It's also hard to describe just how out of place they are. They don't fit. Well, they do. On their own, it sounds like Bible, right? I mean, it's beautiful verses, something that we might even have an artistic friend scribble down in calligraphy and frame and give it to someone to put on their wall. But if you try reading through the first 11 chapters of Romans, when you come to these verses, you'll see. Now notice I said, if you try reading through the first 11 chapters of Romans, it's a real slugfest. It's as hard and complex a piece of scripture as there is the first 11 chapters of Romans. That's why some scholars who are even experts in Romans have suggested lately that the best way to read Romans is backwards. Now, they don't mean literally word for word going backwards. Here's, here's how I would explain it. The epistles of Paul, like Romans, fall into two parts. The first part is theology, and the second part, applied theology. In this case, the first 11 chapters are a theology that says a lot of things, but I would boil it down to the faithfulness of God in Christ Jesus. And then in chapter 12, just right after this, it turns that corner to applied theology and says, and we are called to live faithfully. I don't know what you think about that strategy. You would, in essence, read Romans 12 through the end, and then you would back up and try your best through Romans 1 through 11 and end with this poetry. So like I said, I don't know about that strategy, but here's what I've been thinking. I've been trying to picture Tertius. That's the name of the man who wrote down the words while Paul dictated. It was a common practice in the first century, an amanuensis or a secretary would be at the desk writing, and the author would be dictating. So I keep picturing Tertius. He's, he's actually named at the end of Romans. I picture him with hand cramps sometimes, maybe rubbing his temples, stretching, third cup of coffee, 11 chapters of heavy, complex theology. And maybe, maybe Paul looks over at him and says, I better throw in some poetry about now. For from God and through God and to God. Maybe, maybe that's what happened. Or, or I picture Phoebe. She is the woman whom Paul designated to deliver Romans. Paul had never been there, but he appointed Phoebe to be his mouthpiece. She would be the one. She wasn't just going to be a glorified postal worker. She would practice reading Romans with coaching from Paul, and she would interpret it as she went and even answer questions. 
Can you imagine her after 11 chapters of heavy stuff finally breaking into the poetry? Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Everybody would be back alert. This passage is a doxology. It, it comes from the Greek word for glory. You, you hear it even in that last verse, to God be the glory forever. Congregations everywhere often will sing a doxology, a song of praise after the offering or wherever. It's a song of praise, of doxology to God. At this point, Paul switches from language about God, pretty heavy, dusty, dry language, to words addressed to God. Beautiful poetry. But this isn't just window dressing. This isn't just something to spice up what could have been dry and boring. No, not at all. In fact, this is where it gets really interesting. In the middle of these four verses of gorgeous poetry, Paul quotes from Isaiah and from Job. And the verses are about questioning of God. Actually, they're about the questioning of the questioning of God. In other words, who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who's given something to God that they might get something in return? Karl Barth was the greatest theologian, most influential of the 20th century. He was a Swiss-born pastor turned professor, and he wrote two commentaries on the book of Romans. In the first one, he said, who has known the mind of the Lord? We have. Now, only because God has revealed it to us, but we have been given insights because of God's giftedness toward us. God has given us the gift to understand the mysteries. In his later commentary in Romans, he said, who has known the mind of the Lord? No one. Because in between these two commentaries, World War I took place. And that cemented it for Bart. World War II would come along and that would just make the case even stronger for him. No one has understood the mind of God, which would include people like Karl Barth and even the Apostle Paul himself. Here's one of the ways I like to think about it. Sometimes when I'm playing golf, I'll hit a shot that goes offline, headed toward the woods. Doesn't happen often, but it happens enough. And it's going, there's no way in the world. It is gone, and then it hits a tree and miraculously bounces back in. And that's when playing partners will almost always say, uh-huh, clergy bounce. I recognize it, clergy bounce. And my response is always the same. Oh, no, I'm in sales, not management. It's just a way of saying clergy do not have any more access to the mind of God than anyone else, not even the writers of Scripture. They, inspired by God, are doing what all of us are doing. They are seeking after God. But here's what Paul does know. This is what he believes, that even in the midst of suffering, Doxology belongs. The 
people in the congregation at Rome, they knew tensions within between Jew and Gentile, and they knew persecution from without by the Roman Empire. It reminds me of the current situation where we are polarized from within and facing a pandemic from without. And Paul says, even in a moment like that, doxology belongs. In other words, if you ever put these words in calligraphy and frame them, you can give them to someone who has lost their job or is losing their battle to cancer. And it's not glib. It's not insensitive because, as we so often learn, people who are suffering can sometimes give the best testimony to the faithfulness of God. In the New Testament, there are two words for time. And you know one of these Greek words, chronos. We get chronology from it or a chronograph. Chronos is is the ticking of the clock. It's the 60 seconds that make up a minute and so forth. Kairos is the other Greek word. And kairos has nothing to do with the ticking of the clock. Kairos, it, it, it interrupts. It's, a, it's when time stands still. Kronos is mowing the grass. Kronos is another Zoom meeting. Kronos is trying to work from home while your kids are doing schoolwork virtually. Kronos is reading the first 11 chapters of Romans. But even in a moment like that, the magic still happens. Doxology still breaks forth. <laughs> Just this week, I was reading Thomas More's The Reenchantment of Everyday Life. It's that little word or that little phrase in there, the re-enchantment of everyday life. More, like so many spiritual writers down through the ages, believed that when we were kids, we may have been more in touch with enchantment and mystery and magic and God, but that over time, our senses are dulled, which just reminded me of Annie Dillard's Pulitzer Prize-winning book, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. She tells a story about how when she was a little girl, she would take a shiny penny, and she'd find a, a crack in the sidewalk, and she'd place it there, or maybe just off to the side where the grass starts, and then she would take some chalk and draw a map, pointing people there, and treasure ahead, and then she would go hide, and she would watch. But writing as an adult, she says, and how many of us still stoop down to pick up a penny? Probably not. A nickel? Eh, a quarter. Maybe a quarter. How could inflation relate to the deflation of our souls? I mean, if there's a $10 bill, surely everyone would stop to pick that up. But where is the line? In the very next verse, after the 11 chapters of theology and this piece of poetry, Paul switches to applied theology. And one of the things he says is that we are called 
to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. And the word sacrifice actually conjures up this image of in the temple where a goat or birds would be offered, burnt whole. But Paul says we're to be a living sacrifice, alive. If, if you stay alive and alert, you will not only discover all of the suffering of the world, but you will also see doxology breaking in. About 30-something years ago, almost 35 now, I had one of those Kairos moments. Life-changing, really. I was just finishing up coursework for my doctoral degree and starting on dissertation. And I had wandered across the street to the campus bookstore. And there, amongst all the hundreds of heavy, dusty theology, was a book by Fred Craddock as one without authority. It's a scholarly book too, but it became for me poetry. Fred's book rocked my world, but it also rocked the world of preaching theory. For roughly 2,000 years up to his book, preaching had pretty much been like the first 11 chapters of Romans. It was supposed to be. It was, well, like cod liver oil. It was good for you, but ugh. And then Fred said, what if, what if sermons were to be more like poetry? What if they were to break forth and bring us into the presence of God, actually have something happen? I remember reading the book. I was just <laughs> dumbfounded. And then I got to the end, and there was one sermon that Fred included. It was called Doxology. It was on these verses. And he described how sometimes in the cool of the evening he would sit on the patio and try to kind of look back on the day and see if he could find Kairos in the midst of Kronos. That's how I would describe what he was doing. And then one evening, it happened. He met doxology. Even invited him in to dinner with the family. And so they all sat down and Fred said to one of the kids, so John... What was, the, what was the worst part of your day today? Well, the school bell rang at 8.30, but the best part was it rang again at 3.30. And everyone chuckled, even doxology. The next day, Fred needed to run some errands, just regular old stuff, but it didn't seem all that routine with doxology along. They both laughed when they saw this kid losing a race with a, a melting ice cream cone in the sunshine. And they both looked deeply at this homeless man who was peering in a jewelry store window. On the way home, Fred said he needed to stop at St. Mary's Hospital. Betty was dying with cancer. And in the parking lot, they had a debate. And Fred prevailed. Doxology would not be going into the hospital. Doxology would wait in the car. So Fred went... And as is often the case, Betty was more in touch with the faithfulness of God at this moment than Fred. And she was the one who said, Let, let's pray, and offered the prayer. And Fred made his way back down to the car, and Doxology said, 
should I have been there? And he said, yeah. But Fred did take doxology with the family on vacation down to the Gulf, to the beach. Because, I mean, doxology always belongs on vacation. It wasn't that long ago I learned that the sermon, though, that Fred preached that day was actually preached the Sunday after the untimely death of his brother Bill. He was at the seminary teaching his class on Romans when Fred got the call. They, they, they pulled him out and said, I'm sorry, but your brother has died. So they packed up the car and drove all night across two states. There wasn't much said. No one could comprehend the mysteries. And then as they got there and drove up the drive, Fred realized he still really didn't have anything to offer. I mean, this had been his brother, but this had been this woman's husband. And, and she came out, and she was the one who broke the silence. She said, I hope you brought doxology with you. And he hadn't. In fact, Fred said, from the very moment he had learned of Bill's death, he had never once thought about doxology. But he ended that sermon with these words. The truth is now clear. If we ever lose our doxology, we might as well be dead. For from God and through God and to God are all things. To God be the glory forever. Amen.